Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Tell Us a Good Story. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and thought, I could talk to this person all day? Outside of meeting Steph, mm. I haven't had too many of those moments, but this was one of those for me. You guys, we had the privilege of talking to an amazing man, Jim Comer. And I wish we didn't have to get off the Zoom call, Kevin, with him because he was so good from the moment we started recording. And he has a million stories. Folks, this man moved to New York City in his mid-20s with the goal of becoming rich and famous. So he became an actor and comedian and then became broke. So he went on a handful of TV game shows to win some money, including Jeopardy and the $10,000 Pyramid. Then he was hired by Lauren Michaels to be one of the original writers for Saturday Night Live in 1975 before writing jokes for Joan Rivers and Bob Hope. Like I said, we could have talked to this man all, all day. day. All day, babe. Can't wait for you to hear this conversation with the one and only Jim Comer. I'm Kevin. And I'm Stephanie. And during our marriage, we have dealt with an electrocution, a brain tumor, brain surgery. Then doctors telling us that children were not in our future, followed by miscarriage, and then Kevin's cancer diagnosis. However, today, we live a life completely healed and restored with three healthy children who doctors said were not possible. And we're here to tell stories that inspire, give hope, and brighten your day. Welcome to Tell Us a Good Story. This episode is being presented to you by Luby Companies, a custom home builder here in central Ohio. Let them be your builder for life. They're freaking awesome. So Jim, just hang tight here for a second. Okay. Right. I've got a question. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Go ahead, Jim. Did I just screw up just then? Yes, go ahead, Jim. Ask us your 13th oh, question. <laughs> it's only my seventh. <laughs> I wanted to know if the lighting on me is okay. Yeah, yeah, you're good. You're perfect. Yes, and, and you're right in the frame, in the middle of the frame, I so am. you're good. I've worked yes. hard on that. Okay, yep. now I'm so ready. <laughs> All right, Craig. This is <laughs> Jim Cobert. Steph, are you ready for this, honey? Oh, my gosh. I have been in email conversations <laughs> with this next guest, and I told you, I'm like, this is going to be fun. <laughs> and you're already laughing. Yeah. You're already laughing. This is going to be fantastic. Oh, my gosh. Well, friends, our next guest holds many titles. He is a keynote speaker, a speechwriter, and a speech coach. He has also been an actor and author of multiple books, including the book titled When Roles Reverse, A Guide to Parenting Your Parents. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to tell us a good story, Mr. Jim Comer. Oh, Jim. Oh, hey, it is good to be with you. We started laughing before the show ever began. I love I have that. tears in my eyes right now. I'm trying to rate my, my laughter. I just had a couple of questions, didn't I? <laughs> a couple. Uh, a couple or 10. <laughs> <laughs> so, first off, Jim, thank you for saying yes to us. Yes. And second, you are, of course, known as an expert communications coach. So, I need your help. I would like to know, how can I convince my wife that I'm actually funny? Oh, my gosh. Jim, Jim don't even how it. can I do that, He's sir? He's been asking every guest this. <laughs> no one's been able to help. Does she laugh at you? Or with you? Maybe at me. At you. I think it's at him. I'll tell her a joke, and she doesn't laugh. And I'm like, is the joke, is it my delivery? And she's like, no, it's it's just you. It's- <laughs> <laughs> well, then maybe you're beyond help. I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny because I am a joke writer. I've written jokes in the past. Really? Like Joan Rivers. Yes, I have. But I am not a joke teller. Okay. I never tell jokes. My cousin Randy tells hundreds of jokes, and he's a lawyer. I tell stories. 
So I don't know about jokes, but I do know that if you have something that's real and human and mostly makes fun of yourself, then you probably aren't going to be funny to other people. Oh, that's good. That is good. Okay. You are a communications coach. Right. Has there ever been, or do you ever have stories from stage that you could share with us? Something gone wrong. Yes. Oh, yes. Many times. I mean, I've had almost everything you can think of go wrong. I remember speaking out in California and it was an outdoor venue. This is Southern California. They had an outdoor thing and a couple of hundred people. And I'm speaking on presentation skills. And right before we go on, they say, oh, the power has failed. And I say, okay. And then they say, the backup power has failed. And I say, because I was an actor, I say, oh, don't worry. I'm an actor. I can speak loud. No problem. (laughs) I'll handle this. I started and I was handling it. They were with me. And then the rest rehearsal for the El Toro Marine Base air show started overhead. (laughs) And I I am running around the stage and speaking between planes. And I'm making all these every time I'm pointing upstairs. And of course, the audience knows what's happening. And they're with me. And here's what I will always tell people when something goes wrong. The audience is on your side. They see what you're dealing with. They want you to succeed. So the fact that I made reference to the air show and I crouched down and I, I had fun with it, they had fun with me having fun with it. And we got through the whole presentation. That's a good point. Like, they're on your side. They're cheering you on. Yeah. And another thing I tell people is acknowledge the obvious. Well, like once I had a lady give uh, She went into labor. In the audience? Uh-huh. <laughs> you don't think that stuff then? Woo! Absolutely. I mean, first of all, we had to take care of her. And secondly, I had to let the audience know she was all right. She was on the way to the hospital. Everything was good. And only when that was said, could we pick back up. Oh, man. You've got to deal with what is before you can go on to do what you want to do. So Jim here, I would have loved to have him as my professor in college Mm -hmm. from a public speaking standpoint. That's fantastic. Okay. I've heard in your 20s, you moved to New York City because you wanted to be rich and famous. What happened? Yeah, you know, I don't know where that rich and famous thing came from. It was just in me. I think really, to be really honest, I think I just wanted to feel more important to make up for God knows what kind of insecurity. So I had had a great job for two years as a teacher out in L.A., but that wasn't enough to feed that hole. So I moved to New York in the fall of 1968. I had $200 and I wanted to be an actor. And I'd had almost no acting experience, but I figured actor, rich and famous. (laughs) That was not exactly my most logical thought, but that's what I did. And within a few months, I got into a really good acting class. David LeGrant, he was wonderful. And Bernadette Peters was in my class. What? Yes. She was in the class for the first three or four months. I got to see her do some, some monologues and she'd studied with David for years. And she was right on the cusp of, of becoming a star. I'm sorry, I don't know who that is. Bernadette Peters is a very famous Broadway star. She's been the lead in five or 10 musicals. Okay. She's in the top five Broadway singers. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. She's really You'd know famous. her. Okay. You'd know her. You'd know her. She's wonderful. Anyway, so I'm in the class, and of course, I'm terrified. 
because these are people that have been acting a lot and they've been in their theaters and their college theaters. I have almost no experience. And I, over the three years with David, I learned a lot and I, I made some progress. I was never a great actor, but I made some progress and it helped me in other things in my career. So finally, my first job was playing Pete Dwarf in Snow White. Okay. Mm -hmm. As a children's theater up in Rochester, I had a small part, but it gave me my actor's equity card, the union card. So I, I got that. And then in 1973 was my most successful year as an actor. Get ready for this. You're going to be so impressed. <laughs> I made $3,000. I worked three jobs for six months, $3,000. And here's the kicker. That put me in the top 10% of the actors in income. Oh my gosh. Take that in. 3,000 top 10%. I, I looked it up this morning. That's $19,000 in today's money. So oh. imagine trying to live in New York on 19,000. And that's the top 10%. Now a reasonable, sane person might look at that figure and think, maybe this isn't the job for me, but not me because I was going to be rich and famous. So what happened is that led to me doing all kinds of odd jobs. Okay, let me get to that. So Steph, we just moved into a new home. You know who's good at homes? I do, Jay Luby. And? Miss Connie Luby. Yes, they build custom homes. They do remodeling. They do office construction. Steph, if you go to lubycompanies.com, they have a picture by picture here on the portfolio. And everyone is absolutely amazing. I want every one of them. <laughs> I want that one or that one. Oh, maybe that one. The Gorgeous. only problem about lubycompanies.com, it's hard to spell. Uh, there's no way I could spell their last name unless you would have told me. I guarantee they get asked every day, how do you spell that? So friends, it's L-U-E-B-B-E-companies.com. Go to that website. Phenomenal pictures of what they do. From new construction to like new renovations, the Luby companies are here to partner with you. They are also a proud sponsor of... Tell us a good story. Jim, I want to give a list of fun facts. We do this for all guests. Okay. All right. And Steph is not aware of any of these. All right. But I want to give a list of fun facts and brag on you a little bit. And this is going to oh. spurn some conversation. All right. So Steph... Jim here, when he was in, in New York City and in acting, he was on a number of quiz shows, including Jeopardy <gasps> and the $10,000 Pyramid with Dick Clark. Oh, it's my favorite. Yes. What was that like, Jim? Yeah, well, Jeopardy, I did it on a dare because I had never seen the program. Okay. And they, I just called up and they told me when they were auditioning people. And I went to this building and there was like 30 of us in the room. And it was a written test. And the people in charge said, now I want you to answer the questions just the way they answer them on the show, right? Okay. You yes. all understand that, right? Well, I didn't understand it. <laughs> never seen the show? I've never seen the show. <laughs> and so like a fool, I went, excuse me, what do you mean? Just like they answer on the show. The whole room that looked at me like I was a pariah. And then they had to explain, you answer the question, we're the question. I went, oh, no problem. So... I, I passed the test and I got on the show and I was up against a four-time winner. They didn't let you go forever back then. But I was, right. This woman had won four times. Art Fleming was, he was the uh, MC, not- He was not the host, the ones that, not Alex yeah, Trebek. Yeah, he was the host. Okay. Uh, yeah, not, he was the early Alex Trebek. And what I remember most is I've never been on TV like that before. And it goes by in a flash. 
And in the first 15 minutes, I knew answers, but I, I wasn't getting <laughs> in. Quick enough. I wasn't getting in because I was making the mistake of reading the question fully before I went in. Okay. And halfway through, I was in bad third place. <laughs> and I realized, oh my God, I have just embarrassed my parents, all my teachers. Oh my gosh. So in the second half, I chose to do a different way. I hit the button and then read the question. Oh gosh. I did. And I zoomed all the way back up. And I was now in second place, very close to the one on top. And then I got the daily double. Okay. And I wagered everything on the daily double because this would have made me tied with her. And the question was, what is the word from the Latin to speak well used at the end of religious ceremonies? And I, I, I think I didn't read it quickly. I was so nervous. And I'm trying to give them Latin. And all they wanted was the word benediction. Oh. Benediction, to speak well. And I skipped over a word I knew to go for something harder. And there went the daily double. Oh. I know. And then when they got the final question, I had $100 to wager on the final question. <laughs> and I was the only one that got it right. No. Yes. So if I had gotten the daily double, I would have won the show. Oh. I know. I left with a big... $200. Today they leave with 100000 Me, 200 If I was Jim and I was doing that, like, I'm going to press the buzzer and then read the question. Every time, okay, Kevin, I'm like, I got nothing. I got out of it. <laughs> I would have made up something. I just, you know, just I would have made up something to sound and sound intelligent. But the point is, the, what I was doing was not working. So I went all right. the way to the other side and it worked. So what happened then with... The $10,000 pyramid. Well, so time goes by. Okay. And I'm, I'm broke most of the time. Okay. <laughs> so I'm always needing money. So I, I'd heard about the pyramid and I had watched it and I thought, that's a good show for me. That's communication. And so I auditioned for it. And I was really, I was really up and going like, you know, like I am right now. And they thought, I know you'll be shocked to hear this. They thought I was a little over the top. <laughs> Can you imagine such a thing? No. Jim, I get it all the time. No, I no, I know. And so I waited, I don't know, another year. I auditioned again. Okay. Over the top. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Third year, I go back, and this time, I take a valley. No, you didn't. I did take a valley. And I did. And I am waiting in the, the lobby area of the producer's office, and there's this real nice young woman drinking coffee. And she and I were just having a great conversation. I was making her laugh and we're having, a, then they call my name and I go into the room where there are six white men behind the table who was going to judge me. And this time I was calm, smooth <laughs> and answered the questions, but didn't go wacko. And I got on the show. <laughs> Yay! And I, I don't know if you know it, they take five of them in a row. Okay. So they tape an entire week's worth of shows in half a day. So that their guests, the celebrity guests, can do them right in a row. It only takes one day of their time. Okay. So the day that I'm supposed to show up at the Ed Sullivan Theater, show up at nine o'clock, and I'm thinking, okay. And when I get there, I walk in, and all of a sudden, I see about 20 people, contestants. And I go, whoa, they sure don't need 20 people. Oh, no. They're going to weed out the crazed and insecure people <laughs> like me. <laughs> I'm going, oh gosh. So, and then 
the talent coordinator arrives. She is the person that has all power about what happens, who gets on, who doesn't. And she's the lady I was drinking coffee with. Really? I I thought she was a gopher. No, no. She was the talent coordinator. I don't know if she remembered me or not, but she takes us down to the cramped basement of the theater. And she says, we're going to play practice games so I can see how you're doing. It goes around and it comes to me. And the person giving me clues is clearly giving me clues for the word tennis shoes. And so I say, tennis shoes. What do you mean? It has to be tennis shoes. And she gives me a word. No, tennis shoe. <laughs> well, it went on. And finally, my friend, the talent coordinator said, how come you don't know the word sneakers? Oh. And I said, because I'm Southern and we don't say sneakers. We say tennis shoes. And she looked at me and said, ah. And one other person in the group stood up for me and said, that's true. They don't say that down South. Right. But the, the look on her face said, Jim, you're finished. <laughs> she didn't say those words, but her face said those words. And I couldn't believe it. I had lost before we even got to the theater. No. So we then go upstairs and we're in this little roped off area because you may or may not remember in the 50s, there were terrible quiz show scandals and they were very strict about how it was handled. You could not speak to anybody outside the group. You couldn't go to the bathroom by yourself. You could not make a phone call. We were, they didn't give us anything to eat. So we're there. And then they announced the uh, celebrity guest for the day. And it's Lucy Arnaz. No. Paul's daughter. Fabulous quiz show player. One of the best. She's terrific. And she's done a lot of them. And then I can't say his name, but it was a cast member from Happy Days. Sort of a minor cast member who was terrible. So the show, if you were a contestant, you were only on for one game. Okay. So if you got a bad celebrity and you lost, goodbye. You didn't get a second shot with the other person. So we're all nervous. So as the day goes on, Lucy wins game after game after game. At the end of four shows, eight to nothing, Lucy. Oh, my gosh. I know. And so I'm going, well... That just doesn't matter to me. I'm not getting on anyway. But then right before she announced the fifth show contestants, I caught her eye. And I don't know what I did. I don't know. She felt sorry for me. She did her finger. I came down. I got onto the walking onto the stage past the cameras. I'm going, thank you. Which one did I get? And I realized she's leading me to Lucy. And all of a sudden, I couldn't help myself. I said, thank God, I got Lucy. And that talent coordinator turned around and said, don't thank God, thank me. In other words, she had chosen to give me Lucy. Oh, I would have a chance. Don't thank God, honey. Thank me. So you actually said that out loud. Thank God. I said, thank God I've got Lucy. And she turned around and said that. Oh, yes. She wanted to let me know she was powerful and she was giving me a shot. So I went to Lucy. And we had, by that time, Lucy had won, so she was getting tired. So it was a pretty close game, but we finally won. <gasps> and I had been, had all this energy in me, and I, I hate to say this, but it's true. I jumped out of the seat and bounded around the room, which, no. <laughs> I mean, act like you've been there before, Jim. <laughs> I, 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 all the energy exploded because we finally won a game. And Dick kind of looked at me like, what is this? Anyway, so then I have to go to the pyramid. And you have to try to get six out of six at the pyramid. Yes. Well, I didn't. I got three or four. And 
That meant that I had to go to this person from Happy Days for the second game. Okay. And I am $3,000 in debt at this point. $3,1975, which is <laughs> 18 today. So I need this. It's not wanting it. I need it. And so I sat down across from this little table, right across from this guy. And during the commercial break, I said, you have got to speak up. You've got to do faster. Don't take so long. Go fast. You understand me? You've got to. And I, he looked at me like he thought I might go across the desk and strangle him. And he backed up. But it worked. In that game, he sped up. Really? And we won. What? It was the only game he won all day. Nine to one. Did you take your shirt off and like run around the, the studio? No, no. That time we were calm. He, I, he was just happy to get out with me killing him. You know, because I was hyped up. And we the show had run long, so I didn't get to go to the pyramid. For that, for, so I had to go home. Okay. For a three-week break before the next thing, wondering if what was going to happen. So when I came back the next time, I started off at the pyramid, didn't win, and I they had two good guests the next time, so they, it was equal either way, and I won six or seven games. Wow. wow. I, I, yeah, and I came within that. I I went to the pyramid three times. I got five out of six twice, and then one time I was giving clues, and okay. I got six out of six, but I used a preposition. And that disqualified me. No. So I never won the 10000 but I, I went home with $3,300. Since I owed 3000 I could pay off all my debts and have a big 300 left. Well oh done. Oh, my ah. gosh. Okay, Steph. Then in 1974-75, Jim had a comedy act with a talented actress and won a talent contest at the famous comedy club, The Improv. This led to Jim getting a manager and possibly becoming a writer on the original season of Saturday Night Live. Okay, we need to talk What about happened this. with that? Yeah, Jim? I had this wonderful friend, Terry, who's just gifted. By this time, I realized that if I was going to make it, I had to go around the traditional auditioning prospect because, I mean, I would show up for an audition for a musical and I would maybe be number 900. Oh, Wow. And most likely they already picked the cast they wanted, but they had to do this, have open calls just because that was the union rule. Okay. So the chances of getting through that process were very small. So we created this comedy act and uh, just did sketches, but like what they do on Saturday Night Live. Okay. And only it was the two of us. We did sketches and monologues and people liked it. And we went to this contest that they had at the improv every month. They had a contest and one act would win and then be allowed to come to the improv and, and get on and, and, and do your act. So we won there thinking, oh, good. Rich and famous is closer. Uh-huh. <laughs> then we get to the improv and they had all of these famous people. Jerry Seinfeld was there, Robert Klein. Wow. And of course, we got on at three o'clock in the morning. Oh. Performing for seven drunks <laughs> no. who were already overdosed on comedy. I'm not kidding. It is hard to get laughs from seven drunks at 3 a.m. I bet. It was not a pleasant experience. It didn't last that long for us because we weren't having any success there, but we got a manager. I don't know how we got it. I'm not sure if he saw us there, if somebody recommended, but he, he liked our stuff. So nothing happens for a year. Summer of 1975, July. He calls us and says, hey, uh, there's this guy named, uh, hmm, 
Lauren Michaels. He's a young producer and he, he's over at NBC and they've given him a show for the fall. And I've sent him your material and he likes it. He wants to see you in his office. Well, that's good. Now, Saturday Night Live meant nothing to us. It was just words. All we knew was TV show. Right. Right. And we're being seen by the producer of TV show. So we go down to 30 Rock, Rockefeller Center, go up to the whatever 15th floor, walk into Lauren's office. And, um, you know, he was a young guy and uh, he was friendly. He said, I really like your stuff. I think it's really good. And I went, great. Would you like us to write some more? We can definitely do more. He said, no, no, no. I, what you sent me is plenty. I get it. I said, well, good. He said, I want you to, to have one of the writing slots on the show. We're going to start in October and I want you to be two of the writers. And we went, that's great. We'd, we'd love to. So, I mean, for obviously TV show, we'd love to. So I remember walking out of the office and John Belushi was in the office. He walked past us. We took the elevator down and we were so excited that we took a cab home, which we never did. We were subway <laughs> people. And we took it because we were going to be TV writers on our way to being rich and famous. Right. Well, we're excited. We tell some people about it. This is the end of July. Well, August comes because he tells us they're getting the, the writers together toward the end of August. So first week, second week, third week, we didn't hear from him. We're beginning to get nervous. So we have our manager call, no response. We call, no response. Manager calls again, no response. Oh, no. It's now September. And we never heard from Lord Michael again. Really? No! And when the show premiered in the middle of October and became a cultural sensation overnight, making the writers and the actors famous, I thought I was going to die. I, 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 it was the biggest disappointment in my entire lifetime professionally. And I was sick. I mean, physically ill, went into depression. And I, um, I took the first job. I took a real job. I went to the New York Times and I found something for a writer, writing training materials for the Girl Scouts of America. And so I spent a year there kind of healing. Yeah. And, and then the next summer, I tried one more time to do some acting. How was Terry with that as well then? Terry was, you know, we were both disappointed, but she was in love. She had met someone in Bermuda that summer and she, okay. was, she was so in love that she didn't take it as badly as I did. So sorry to hear that. Oh, it was I... a tough, well, you know, here in retrospect, let me say something in Lauren's behalf. He was all of a sudden, I'm sure, flooded with resumes from well-known comedy right. writers who all of a sudden heard about this show. People who had long resumes in TV, plus the cast members all had writer friends. And I'm sure they showed him their writer friends. And I'm sure he must have had 50, 60, 70 people to choose from, maybe more. And we didn't have any resume on TV. He just liked our skits. So as I look back, I am sure that's what happened. It would have been nice if he'd been kind enough to call us, but he had other things to do. So that, that's what happened. If you like what you hear, please tell someone about us. As soon as this episode is over, go tell your spouse, your closest friend, a parent, a coworker, or share one of our posts on social media. However, if you don't like what you're hearing, please do not. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anybody. Just disregard this message. Don't worry about it. Forget about us. Yep. Go on with your merry day. And to get more information about us or our entire catalog of episodes, be sure to check us out at kevinandsteph.com. Thank you for listening to Tell Us a Good Story. Well, Steph, Jim's first book, 
How to Survive a Roommate, landed him a spot on the Today Show. <gasps> yeah, that sounds very easy. Let me tell you the real story. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote the book the summer of 1976 when I was again unemployed. I wrote it starting that summer. And basically what had happened was I'd been writing for this weekly paper on the Upper West Side. And I wrote all sorts of stuff like I wrote about locks, L-O-C-K-S, because it was during a big crime time in New York. People had three and four locks on their door. So I did some research and I wrote a cover story about 2000 words on locks. And that was a lot for me. So it came out, everybody liked it. And I got a call from a literary agent. He said, Jim, would you like to write a book on locks? I could barely get out 2,000 words. I said, no, I I couldn't possibly do that. And then out of my mouth came the idea. I said, the only thing I know enough to write a book on is roommates, because I've had so many of them. And as I said the words, I went, good idea. (laughs) So that year, I started writing. It was based on my 17 roommates. Oh, my. 17 from college in New York. All kinds. So I had the material and uh, I made it a funny how-to. And I found a young agent who has since become a big agent in the romance field, but she was just getting started. She took my book and she began circulating it. That was about 1977. Okay. We did not sell the book until 1980. I don't know how many rejections it had, probably 30 or 40. Finally, a New York publisher bought it. I'm thrilled out of my mind. I meet the editor who had loved my book. She took me to lunch, thrilled. Everything was And then she tells me that she's just taken a job with a much bigger publisher. So she's not going to be there during the publishing process to fight my battles for me internally. And I didn't realize how publishing worked. You need someone on your side inside the, the company. I didn't have anybody now. Okay. This is a funny book. And this is the cover of my book. About as funny as a casket. Picture of a keys. Oh, it says it's a keys. Two can live better than one if they don't kill each other first. Yeah. That looks like something our 10-year-old drew. It's not a funny cover. It's not. No, and I didn't know that. I was so thrilled with the book. I thought the cover was fine because I was stupid. I didn't know. I needed somebody to tell me. So they do publish the book because we have a contract. Okay. I think I got a $2,000 advance. And then when it comes out in the fall of 1980, they do nothing. Really? Zero. No promotion, no publicity, zero. I realized I've got to do something. So I had a friend who had a friend, another friend who knew the talent booker at the Today Show. Okay. That's four friends away. But... <laughs> It was good enough. At that time, the Today Show was the number one book market venue in the country. This was before Oprah. If you could get on the Today Show with a book, you had a big chance to do well. So I am thrilled. I'm seeing the RNF. Yep, Richard Famous. I'm seeing it twinkling in the distance. (laughs) And what I said when I got into to talk to the talent booker, I said, I would like to interview Jane Pauley who was very young at the time. I'd like to interview her as a potential roommate using the ideas in my book. Well, she perked up right away. She loved it because Jane was a little quiet at that time. They wanted to give her a little more humor and fun. So this fit their agenda. She booked me an hour later. Wow. I was on January 2nd, 1981. 
And um, I remember going in that day, sitting in the green room. I'm so excited. This is my moment. National TV. They take you into the big studio. And I'm sitting on a little bench before we go on. And Jane comes and sits next to me. And I turn to her. I say, I'm so excited about doing the role play. I think we're going to have so much fun. She says, you know, I don't really think it's a good idea. I, I, no, I don't think so. And then the lights are on. We're live. And she starts to give a regular interview. And I'm saying to myself, this is the only time you will ever be on the Today Show. Got one shot. And so all of a sudden, I just interrupted her. I said, Jane. <laughs> no. Yes, I did. I interrupted her. I said, Jane, I want to interview you as if you really might be my roommate. Here's my first question. I said, do you have a well-paying job? <laughs> and she heard that. And she thought, okay, this could be fun. And she played. She played long. She said, I have a good paying job and benefits to boot. I said, that's good. I'm glad you'll be employed because some of my roommates have not been. And then I started going, I asked her, what was she going to contribute to the house? Did she have a color TV? Did she cook? I had all these funny questions and she played along. This sounds like the interview when Steph met me for the first time. There you go. Absolutely. And you passed the interview. Yes. He did. He did. I had a color TV. Uh, yes. That was a big thing because I didn't have a color TV. And so I get, finally, I go to the last question. And I said, how can I put this gently, Jane? Will you be having overnight guests? <laughs> and then she broke character. She said, amazing that you asked that, Jim. Because when I was in college, I had a roommate who did have overnight guests. And it wasn't easy. But we had the crew laughing. And typically, a book guy, author, gets about two minutes. We got five. Oh. Five minutes. That's double the length because we were having fun. She was playing. She was looking good. And everybody loved the interview. And I walked out. This is, again, in 30 Rock. Okay, yes. I go down the elevator. I'm walking up to Fifth Avenue to, or had a real job by this time. I'm walking the six blocks up to my real job. You know what I'm thinking? RNF. RNF. <laughs> I'm thinking today's show, great interview. Can't help but be rich and famous. Well, what I didn't know was that they didn't have the books in many stores around the country. They had done a bad job of distribution. But what I now know is if you're going to promote a book, you've got to be on 40 shows, including some big ones, all within a short period of time. And you've got to have ads and you had to have any of that. So it didn't make me rich and famous, but I do have the video of it. And um, it was a, one of my five, favorite five minutes of my life. Well, mm. a couple of things. One, I'm shocked they didn't just go to a commercial break, that they just keep going, keep going. You didn't get cut off and no. just went the five minutes. And until you're right, it's not like you can say, hey, go to my website and get this book. Yeah. No, there That's was no true. Amazon. There was no website. Right. They had to go to the bookstores and yes. these books had to be in the bookstores and they had to have enough of them so people could see them. There are all these things that go into making a right. bestseller. And the author has control of almost none right. of them. Mm, yeah. I have a feeling I'm going to need a nap after this conversation, yeah. by the way. Ah. <laughs> so next fun fact about Jim is he's written jokes for Joan Rivers yeah. and a monologue for the legendary Bob Hope. Yes. Did you get to meet Bob Hope? Oh, yes. I'm telling you the story right now. Please. In the summer of 1987, I'd done a musical down in Columbia, South Carolina. I had a great time. This was a great last thing. I'm not doing it anymore. So when I got back to New York, I 
I called my entire address book, 300 people. And I told them acting is over. And I'd done by this time, I'd done a good bit of writing. I'd been in the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Reader's Digest. So I had stuff. And I said, I'm looking for a real job. I just want you to know. And of course, here's the deal. If you're an actor and you're saying you're stopping, nobody believes you. <laughs> right. Because I've done it a couple of times before. And so this time I really meant it, but most nobody believed me. Finally, this one woman who I'd worked with earlier, had she was in human resources at Avon, the world headquarters. And she said, Jim, if I get you an interview and by some miracle you get a job, you have got to stay six months or I'll be embarrassed. See, she didn't believe me either. But sure enough, a couple of months later, she got an in-memo sales meeting department looking for a wacky idea person. <laughs> That's this guy. <laughs> she calls me and she tells me, I've sent your name up to the sales meeting department and they may call you. And they did call me. And when I met the director, she gave me the job. Wow. And so anyway, I worked there for um, four years. And the first three, I was in sales meetings. So I got to know the 3,000 women that ran the company. Okay. They were my mother times 3,000. <laughs> they were heart of America, good people, my mother. So I got along with them just great. And then finally, after three years, I moved into special projects and they they assigned me to write a speech for the CEO of the company. I'd never written a speech before, but he was going to be speaking to an award saying for my people. So I wrote this warm and funny speech and not corporate at all. And everybody loved it. And suddenly all the executives started using me and they're going to have this big company-wide meeting in Atlanta the first week of January. And they brought me down there to write speeches. And I knew that they had hired Bob Hope to be the entertainment for a black tie dinner on the first night. And they had all 3,000 district managers there. It was the one and only time in the whole company's history they ever brought their whole sales force together. And that afternoon, I, I realized that Bob Hope loved to do material about the company. So I had written a monologue for him based on all the things that I knew these district managers hated. Everything that them off, all their hot buttons. I knew them because I knew these ladies. And I especially knew they hated their company car because they couldn't get their display to fit into it. I knew all their stuff. So I wrote this monologue about all their real issues. And I thought it was funny. And so I get down there to Atlanta and I go to the big room where they're, they're going to be doing the rehearsals. And I get them to put my monologue on the teleprompter. Okay. So when Bob shows up, there's my monologue. And he looks over it and he says, I don't understand one thing. <laughs> I don't, he didn't get any of it. He said, I, I, he said it made me funny, and, uh, but I don't get it. And then he's so kind. I can't believe he did this. I mean, this man who's the king of comedy for the whole century. He said, young man, I'd like for you to come back to my suite and go over each joke with me line by line and tell me why it's funny. Okay. I said, sure. I'm going to be going to Bob Hope's room to tell him what's funny. And we went line by line. I explained to each one the best I could. And at the end, he goes, I still don't get it. But here's what I'm going to do, Jim. I'm going to do one joke. You tell me the funniest joke. I'll do that. And if it gets a big laugh, I'll do the whole monologue. I said, start with the first joke. It's about the company car. And if it doesn't laugh, I'll just commit. <laughs> and so... 
I'm betting everything on that joke. And I also gave him an apron to wear that we had called, I'd, I'd rather be selling Avon. So he comes out with the apron, which is kind of weird. Okay. And I am sitting there holding my tub, just thinking, oh, please, God, let this be funny. And of course, there was no prep, right? So he opens with my joke and he says, you know, they are treating me like a king here at Avon. The CEO met me at the airport in a chauffeur-driven Chevette, and they screamed and beat the floor, and the look on his face was like, what just happened? And true to his word, he did the whole monologue, and it kept going laugh after laugh after laugh. And the next morning, I knew they were going to replace the Chevette with a new and better car, so it was okay to joke about it. But just the room rocked. So how long was the monologue? How long did he go there? I, don't know, uh, I think it was 12 minutes, 12 jokes. Oh, wow. wow. And I, of course, when it finished, you know what I was thinking. I'm thinking, well, he's going to take me with him to Hollywood. <laughs> R&F. 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 How could he not? R&F. This is it. <laughs> and I never heard from him again. But what? Never saw or heard from him again. But here's the magic thing that happened. I mean, in, in a three-day conference, that 10-minute monologue was the hit of the whole deal. They talked about it for years. Friends, we just want to take a moment here to say thank you to all you loyal listeners. Ah, you guys, we just found out that Tell Us a Good Story is now in the top 1.5% of all podcasts worldwide. And that is because of you guys sharing with your family and friends on social media and giving us positive reviews on all the podcast platforms. And if your friends ask, just tell them they can get our entire catalog of episodes at kevinandsteph.com or wherever they like to get their podcasts. Thank you guys so much for listening to Tell Us a Good Story. So here's the most important fun fact. After his father suffered a massive stroke and his mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, Mm. Jim wrote the book, When Roles Reverse, A Guide to Parenting Your Parents. And this was a finalist for the Writers League of Texas Best Nonfiction Book. And this is a lot of the presentation, a lot of the seminars he does is based on his experience with parenting his parents when he was in his 50s. So, Jim, can you walk us through what that was like when you went back and you were the solo caregiver for both of your parents? Right. But what had happened was I, I moved back to California where I'd done some teaching because I was still trying to get into TV. And I thought I could be a sitcom writer. And it was a great shock to me that when I arrived in L.A., the industry was not waiting for me. So, <laughs> such quite a shock. I mean, I, wrote, I did some scripts and we got down to close calls a couple of times. But it didn't happen, but the speech writing did. So I began to make a good career as that. And I was in L.A. for 13 years. I had a house and uh, a good job working for a CEO and had a great church. And, you know, I was happy. And then one morning, the phone rings. I'm asleep. And I kind of ring for it and reach for it. And it was my parents' next-door neighbor from Dallas. And in 34 years of living next door, she had never, ever called me. Instantly, I knew this was going to be bad. And I was right. She said, Jim, your daddy is walking around in the front yard in a circle. He looks like he's in a daze. I think he's had a stroke. And I got hung up from her, got on the phone to my mother, tried to get dad to come to the phone. He wouldn't come. He was yelling in the background. And in that moment, I knew that she was right. And my life changed instantly and forever. I was on a plane six or seven hours later to Dallas where they'd lived. 
And I, when I got off the plane, I rushed to the hospital where they'd taken him. And then when he got to the hospital, he had the major stroke. And when I got there, he could not walk. He could not talk. And he didn't have control of his bodily functions. Mm-hmm. And he was in intensive care. And my poor mother, who had early dementia, and he'd been taken care of for five years, she didn't understand what was happening. And I'm the only child because I had a brother who died 30 years earlier in a car accident. So I was it. But I realized soon after, because the doctors told me, you only have a week here in the hospital, only one week. And then you've got to get your dad into rehab from the stroke. And it couldn't be in Dallas because we didn't have any relatives in Dallas. All of our family was down here in the Austin area. So I had to fly down to Austin. My cousins met me and we went to four rehab centers in one afternoon. They all looked the same to me. We finally got to St. David's and a nurse smiled at me. And that's why I chose St. David. I needed a smile. And I was hoping if this is how they would treat my dad. So St. David said, we'll bring your dad down in an ambulance next Monday. I said, great. And when I got back home to Dallas that night and I told that to mother, she said, that's fine for daddy. That's okay for him. He can be down there. But Jim, I am staying right here in Dallas. I am not leaving my home. Well, of course, she had to leave her home. She couldn't be there alone. So I had to find a way to get her from Dallas 200 miles down to Austin, where my cousins had volunteered to keep her until I could decide what to do. So... I thought what to do. And I came up with this idea. I call it therapeutic lying. (laughs) On Sunday night, before they're taking him down on Monday, I packed for my mother. It wasn't pretty, I'm sure, but I packed. And Monday morning, I am betting the whole farm on this lie. She's sitting at her breakfast table at eight o'clock and she's reading the newspaper and having her cup of coffee. And I go in and I get right down. I said, mama, would you like to go get some ice cream? (laughs) My mother loves ice cream. Even at eight o'clock on a Monday morning, she smiled, got right up from the table, took my arm, walked out of the house, got into the car, and we drove away from her home of 34 years. And she never saw it again. Oh. I know. But don't think I'm a bad guy. I stopped at the first dairy (laughs) plant. Got her the biggest chocolate sundae you can imagine. And then I headed for I-35, which is a straight shot down to Austin. And I kept waiting for her to say something and question where we're going. And she never did. We got down to Austin, left her off with my cousins. And then I flew back to L.A. because I'd been away from my job for 11 days. Mm. And I spent the next six months going back and forth from Dallas to Austin. I got to tell you this one. The first trip I came back after that, went to see my dad at the St. David's Rehab. And as I got to the edge of the room, uh, I could see him there. And uh, he still didn't, didn't really talk. He certainly wasn't walking. And he had tubes all going out. He wasn't able to use the bathroom. But, you know, his mind was good. His eyes were good. He saw me walk in the room and he forced out. Get me pills. And I thought, oh my gosh, I know what kind of pills he wants. What kind of pills did you think he wanted? Pain? Nope. Much more powerful than that. 
He wanted to get me pills to end his life. Because <gasps> if, you, if you'd seen the look on his face, you would have known that. I knew it instantly. And I said, Danny, I can't do that. Uh, I'll go to jail. And he said, oh, good. And I didn't know what to do. And just like being an actor in New York, being a caregiver is a lot about faking it and improvisation. And so he was a tough guy. And, you know, I knew that he didn't want to be dependent. And, and by this time, I knew that my mother, sweet as she was with her memory loss, was driving my poor cousins crazy. So I needed to get her into assisted living, needed to get him into another skilled nursing. So I flew back that weekend, had three days. And on Friday, I went to a place that I was told was the best in town. And by some miracle, they had openings in both places for that coming Monday. And I was able to get both my folks in the same place. And when, once dad got there, something changed. And he began to focus on recovery. And within four months, he was walking and talking and telling me how to drive. And uh, so it was great. And then finally, as the summer went on, I realized there were so many things that kept happening. I realized I couldn't do it from California. It, either I could bring them out there where it was so much more expensive, or I could quit my good job and leave everything and come back to Texas and help them there. Yeah. So that's what I did. That fall, I came in a U-Haul. And um, that first two weeks was really a shock because, you know, I'd seen my mother in little small doses for the Alzheimer's, right? And suddenly I'm seeing her every day and realizing how profound her memory loss was. But then the real most important thing that ever happened to me in caregiving happened about two weeks later. Okay. Mom asked me, Jim, can we go see my sister in Smithville, about 60 miles away? And that would have been a very logical request, except for one tiny fact. What do you think? She's not there anymore. She dead. Eight years dead. Mm. And I, being a rookie caregiver, made the mistake of telling my mother that. I said, Mom, we can't go see Estelle. She's in, she's in heaven. Well, that was brand new news to my mother. That's if she never heard it. She started crying and her shoulders, she cried for 15 minutes. And I'm just looking at her going, what did I do? The next day, I made an appointment with an Alzheimer's specialist. I went in and I said to the woman, I said, I don't think I can do this. And she said, honey, from what I hear, you don't have much choice. And she was right. I said, what do I do? And she said, quit trying to drag your mother into your world. Instead, you have got to come into her world. And the second she said that, I got it. I got it instantly. And I began doing it that day. And I did it for the next 14 years. <gasps> I know. God bless you. We went through every step on the continuum of care, including 10 years in skilled nursing, which is like four or five times longer than the typical, and then hospice at the end. We didn't miss anything. Oh. But I kept applying that all the way through. As things would get worse and her condition would go down, I just adjusted how I behaved. And I think that's the key. If you can improvise and have a sense of humor, caregiving is so much easier. Mm. Stuff. As you've just witnessed, 
Jim here is a communications consultant. He's a master, right? More than 30 years of experience working with Fortune 500 companies from all kinds of industries. His clients include Dell, IBM, KPMG, Office Max, Emerson. And today, Jim does presentation skills workshops. He does one-on-one speech coaching and speech writing, and he gives keynote speeches on presentation skills. Well, listeners, for more information about Jim, you can go to his Facebook page at jim.comer.9256. Also, his website is comercommunications.com. And again, we'll put the links in our show notes and on our website so you can just click right on it and go right to his information. And his book that's titled When Roles Reverse. Oh, I just happened to have a copy. <laughs> I know you're shocked to hear this. It's been it's been out a while now, and it, it has my personal story in there. And what I try to do after I lead with all my mistakes mm. and what I learned from them, so that people that read that can go, oh, you don't have to be perfect, you just have to be willing to learn. And if they leave thinking, if Jim Comer can do it, <laughs> I can do it. You know, that's what I want them to learn. Well, Jim, I know you didn't become rich and famous, but you became an amazing individual mm-hmm. and an amazing human being. And God bless you, sir, for the investment you made with your parents and giving up your career in LA to completely pivot your life. A lot of people would not have done that. And so I can't tell you how much respect Steph and I have for you and the person you became throughout that whole experience. God bless you. So you are better than advertised. And thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thanks, Jim. Well, you all were so much fun. I loved being with you. I This didn't feel like an interview. It feel like just uh, talking to friends. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Friends, we want to encourage you to please follow us wherever you listen to this, whether it's on the Apple Podcast app, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or one of the other platforms. You guys, it's completely free. And while you're there, feel free to give us a rating or a nice review. Thank you for listening to Tells a Good Story.